Hi, and welcome to the Next Age Radicals podcast, where each month the guest from our previous episode becomes the host for our next one. All are Next Age Radicals, people who are hands-on in the work of discovering new and better ways of working, challenging the conventions of Management 1.0 in order to move the world of work to the next stage. Our episodes are whatever our guests make of them, an opportunity to get creative, to explore deeply, to have a rant, or to pause and reflect as they each explore what it takes to make work, work better. Welcome to the Next Stage Radicals podcast, where each episode is hosted by a different member of our community of practice, the Next Stage Radicals. My name's Toby Lowe, and I'm your host for today. Previously, Mark Smith interviewed me about human learning systems, an alternative way of doing public management, which enables public service to work better in complex environments. And so as the next link in this chain, I thought it might be interesting for people to hear from a person who actually supports people and organisations to work better in complexity. So my guest today is Claire Robinson. And if I list all the ways in which he's brilliantly radical, we'd be here a while. So here are just a few highlights. Claire has been a children's social worker and trained social workers. She's led organisations supporting people whose families are affected by substance misuse. She's for better recognition of neurodiversity and supported organisations to use storytelling for change. And currently, she has at least four different strings to her working life bone. She works for a social work charity supporting children's social workers. She's a certified warm data host and daring way dare to lead facilitator. She's supporting organizations on the ground to explore a human learning systems approach to management. And she's an entrepreneur establishing a business to explore the ecological systems power of mycelium, which keeps her all very busy indeed. And to top it all off, she's a pretty mean dancer as well. So welcome, Claire. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm pretty exhausted listening to that list when you put it that way yeah no wonder you're 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 always busy tell us about your radical idea and business plan well I don't necessarily know how radical this idea is or how big it is or the fact that it's even mine but even when reflecting on the, the the ways in which you described me there and kind of think when I was thinking about this interview today. I'm not how I'm not sure how radical my idea is. It's more of a noticing than it is an idea as well. And a collection of my reflections on other people's ideas and noticing in that a lot of the a lot of the work that we're undertaking in this in this field and kind of beyond that as well seems very much to me like it isn't new. It's just helping us to get back to the behaviors and the relationships that are innate within us that we are neurobiologically socially wired to move towards but yet we've been prevented from forming or prohibited from forming to our full capacity because of the the systems that we've created to to serve us so if i'm hearing you correctly you're saying something like human beings are innately social beings we want to be in relationships it's kind of natural for us and the way that we work has got separated from that we are required to work together in social groups to stay safe to work together to thrive to be well to solve problems 
that's what we've always been wired for and that's what we continue to be wired for and I want to kind of come back to to something that you mentioned in your conversation with Mark Smith as well about if something doesn't feel right it's not right and there's a reason why it doesn't feel right to us and because that's moving us away from being who we're supposed to be it's moving us away from safety it's moving us away from the relationships it's artificial or it's dangerous in some way so what would work look like if it recognized and better acknowledged those are uh, kind of innate need to be in relationship with one another and one of the issues that we have is scale and the size of the organizations and institutions which we work within and that the, the processes uh, and hierarchies and bureaucracy that exists within those systems quite often does serve as a form of control, which in many cases has arisen from a lack of trust and a need to uh, exploit and exploit the people within that system. Whereas in the world of work, if we worked within organizations, institutions, bodies, which were generative and not exploitative. If we worked in smaller devolved organizations or there was greater diversity within the ecosystems of work, that would lend itself to a much more natural feel, more towards the kind of environment that we are wired for. And I'm really curious about that phrase that you just used, greater diversity within the ecosystems of work. Could you say some more about that? So when I'm thinking about greater diversity within ecosystems of work, what I'm speaking to is not that we necessarily have a... When I think about eco, greater diversity in ecosystems of work, I'm thinking about scale as well. When I kind of come to thinking about engineering processes and, and manufacturing. So there may be a need for a particular project that needs to go through a particular engineering system to be produced. And there may be a great demand for that. And it may be that that needs to be produced in, in multiple sites, in multiple regions. But where we can bring in diversity is that we can control the engineering systems because we know what the intended product is at the end of that. And there are reasons of safety, perhaps, for controlling those. But when it comes to humans, the humans who are operating within those systems, if we give them the trust and the freedom to run those systems the way they see best and feel best and can bring in the, the talents and the ideas and the, and the strengths of the people within that, every system and every, every place of work then becomes different. And I suppose what that, what, what that is different to are models like the franchise models where the behavior is expected of the people who work within it is so incredibly prescriptive that it robs everybody of, of, of personality, of agency, of 
I was actually speaking to somebody about this today, it, it robs them of their sense of joy, of their sense of life. And actually we, there was a phrase that was used once by this woman called Kate Rogers, who, who teaches joy is resilience. And what she speaks to is that joy is the resilience that sustains our desire to be alive. So if we, if we find ourselves working in systems which, in which there is no trust, there is no agency that robs us of our joy, then what does that do to our desire to be alive? Nice. So I, again, I'm going to try and play a couple of things back to you just to make sure that I'm understanding them correctly. Because well, I think I've heard you say two things there. That kind of greater diversity within ecosystems of work enables those ecosystems to better fit for their context so it's a kind of it's an evolutionary argument that the systems and the actors within them need to be able to adapt to their context and that's what enable enables good fit within different kind of evolutionary niches that's a nice idea and then the second thing i heard you say was something like that uh, that that difference is incredibly important to human beings motivation to work because it enables us to be the be the full humans we need to be in those contexts and to find our joy in those contexts did i understand that about right yeah yeah you, you did i think and and so firstly coming back to the system actors being able to adapt that context can also flip that around in the, the, the system that they find themselves, it needs to allow for that. There needs to be the space for that, the space for that without, without fear, without fear of reprisal, without fear of, of, of judgment, of without how it compromises their own personal values, ethically as well. And when we talk about humans need for joy, that joy very often comes from very small moments are the relationships that we have with others around us and the environment, which, which again needs space. It needs space for, it needs space for growth. It needs space for people to, right, I'm going to come back to that one. Okay. So yeah, no, what, and then what, was, what you reflected back to me was the effect of the, Reflect that one back to us again about joy. The, the second thing that I heard was that, and that enabling diversity within a kind of work ecosystem enables each human being to find their joy in that, in that ecosystem, to, to kind of bring their full humanity and be the person that they can be in that context. Is that right? Yes. That is right. Uh, enabling diversity in that ecosystem, it does allow or creates an environment where people feel safe to show up mm. as their full authentic selves. And which when we are, when we feel safe, we allow ourselves to experience joy. We're not very good as humans as experiencing joy. Because we're constantly practicing for disaster, <laughs> constantly fearing judgment, or constantly, very often fearing judgment. But it's, and it is only when we're in an environment that allows us to be our true selves that we experience joy. 
that I experience joy when I'm out walking in the morning and I spot dolphins. Like when I have a moment of, of shared connection, when, I, when I'm feeling safe and when I'm feeling free. And if you are working in an environment where you don't feel safe, you don't feel free, you don't feel able to bring your whole self, then you dramatically limit your capacity for experiencing joy within that system. Nice. And I, I want to ask you now about your kind of practice with people and organisations and how you help to create spaces for conversations and work processes that bring about that kind of diversity in the ecosystem that you were talking about. Because I know you've been supporting a range of organisations as a learning partner to help them develop a human learning systems approach. So maybe you want to draw on some examples from some of that or from elsewhere in your in your practice. That, I know if you can't, you can't see this because you're listening, but I'm smiling here and I'm just because, and I'm smiling because I've realised what I'm about to say and what I've just spoken to as well. So yeah, I'm smiling because the way that I support creates spaces, safe spaces in organisations is that I bring my authentic self to those spaces. I'm smiling because I recognise that when I, we started this conversation and when I launched, like, launched into replies, they're authentic in that, yes, these, these are the things that I think and these are that I believe, but perhaps the way I communicated them was not necessarily fully me. I intend to show up authentically in spaces when I'm working with an organisation. And also the word that comes back in, in feedback that I receive is authentic. It comes back so much to the point where I actually started to question myself, where I'm saying, just what, what's, what are all these people saying? What does authentic mean? Is that like, yeah, I'm turning it as a, as a hot mess, as a, were they saying something that I don't? But actually, I show up as me and I talk about what hasn't felt right to me. And I think that gives other people permission to actually, yeah, no, I find that. I experienced that. But this is, there is so much that we don't talk about because we don't feel safe, because we're in systems that we may, may be truly psychologically unsafe or we may perceive to be unsafe because of our experiences of the world in general and the world in, of, of work. Okay, so I was going to ask you, so if the way that you responded to my initial questions about what your radical vision was, is what you think and believe, but maybe isn't how you would have authentically put it, what, right, if you're feeling a little safer in this conversation now, how would you, how would you reframe that, rephrase it? My wish for the world is that we can all move freely in a way that feels good to us and does no harm to others. That we don't get caught in the fishnets of systems. It seems like even from, so this kind of goes back to being at school. And I remember being at school and I'd taken a very short time out. I can't remember what it was for. I can't remember the circumstances, but what I remember feeling 
was checked differently and it being really unfair and there being inflexibility because that's the way things have always been done. And I think that what, what moves me through the world is untying those fishnets and setting, setting the fish free. So what, that, that's a really lovely way of expressing the, what you do with people and organisations. So how, how do you help people move more freely through the world of work? I help people to see each other from their own hearts and not through a job title or a place in a hierarchy. I help people to feel safe enough to be able to expand what it is that's possible to be communicated within that space so they can talk about the things that they perhaps knew in their bones but were never able to verbalise. And to hope, I mean, what I what I what I hope for is to be able to create spaces which help to increase the capacity for both empathy and compassion within systems. Because one of the things that I do struggle with is the deafness within systems and access within systems being unable to hear what it is that's being communicated, being unable to hear really difficult experiences and real experiences because of the lack of empathy and compassion within the system mm -hmm. it's it's so interesting that you say that because this is a bit of a repeated theme that i hear from people who are developing human learning systems approaches in different contexts and it kind of really leans on the human bit of human learning systems for me so when i speak with gary wallace in plymouth for example, he, what he, the way that he describes what he's trying to do is to create systematic empathy so for all the people who are engaged with each other in the system within which he works to see each other as full human beings. And there are a variety of mechanisms that they now routinely deploy and that he trains people in in order to enable people to see themselves, to see each other as full human beings in a work context. So one of the things that he routinely does, for example, is he trains people in appreciative inquiry as a way to have conversations with people that get them to show up as, as storytellers in the world. Is that, it, can, you, can you say a bit more about your, A, does that resonate with you? And B, if it does, could you say a bit more about what your practice looks like? To, to build that, to in, as in your words, increase capacity for empathy and compassion. And that does resonate with my experience. And I was revisiting Tanya Singer's work on empathy. I think it works probably about seven or eight years old now, where one of the one of the most effective practices to increase empathy was the ability to perspective take. So there was three practices in the research. They were mindfulness, perspective taking, and compassion. 
the perspective taking was found to be the most powerful in helping to, to increase empathy. And, and quite interestingly, one of the talks that's available is, is um, so speaking at Davos and talking about the implications for the economy. If, if we have a system that becomes then flooded with empathy, which it's good to know those conversations are happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that would be nice. Let's, let, let's see where they go. So in terms of help working within an organizational context to help increase capacity for empathy, there are very specific practices that, that I use. What some of the work that, that I lean on quite heavily in my practice is the research of, of Brené Brown. And, and so for anybody who doesn't know Brené, she describes herself as a researcher and, and storyteller. And, and she spent much of her life researching shame and vulnerability with, it, with a big focus on creating cultures of courage within organisations. And within that work, there are very specific practices that, that, that leaders, that teams, that organisations can introduce to, to help them to develop a greater capacity for empathy within that system and also to hold each other accountable for that as well. One of the things that empathy requires is it's not simply a heart it's not it's not simply a head of a cognitive practice it's a it's a whole body whole heart practice and to do that as well as yeah and we need to bring conversations around how we're feeling within our bodies and noticing how we're feeling in our bodies as well as what we might think of a particular agenda point on a piece of paper. We need to, when we talk about our whole selves, mm -hmm. we need to bring our whole selves, body, heart, and mind into those spaces. Um, and you, you mentioned the word accountability then in, in your description of Brown Brown. And it, it's a word that, and a, a concept that comes up frequently in the conversations that I have. People want to know if we're going to do things differently, how does accountability work in? say an environment where people aren't being held accountable for hitting particular targets so could you say a bit more about what accountability looks like in the world that you've just described in this was accountability in, in the context that i've just described is spoken about as being one of the core, core components of trust building so not not necessarily account accountability at the, mm -hmm. at the end of that higher context but that interpersonal accountability so if you said you're going to do something you do it and if you don't do it or you can't do it then you're very clear about that at an early stage that you reach out you ask for help so and and, and in public services in many public services there is a lack of trust between the service and the community they are serving, but there's also a lack of trust within that, within that public service and within the, the, and within the broader context of other organisations and actors within that as well. Yet, we don't talk about trust. We do talk about things not getting done. We do talk about feelings of frustration or or apathy or there's that yeah I think it's apathy it's like yeah here we go again we've tried this before so on that on the version of account if again if I'm hearing you correctly and say if I'm not that that our increased 
capacity for for kind of whole person communication actually enables accountability because it it makes providing an account i did this or i didn't do this because blah, blah, blah. it makes that process of rendering an account actually more possible and more full yeah it does it does because because one of the reasons we don't hold ourselves to account or we don't openly ask for help or say something's not possible is because of that fear of, of judgment like oh if it could there's a culture of blame is mm -hmm. there like or you blame yourself for not getting something done or not being able to achieve something when actually what it was that you set out to achieve was was impossible in the first place and yet it becomes internalized it becomes not spoken about and that yeah and that just weakens even further i want to pick up on like a pattern of things that i think i've heard you uh, allude to a few times in our conversation today it seems to be a you seem to be kind of drawing on analogies between human systems and particularly human work systems and ecological systems and that so i, I suppose either i invite you to say something about that like about your understanding of the relationship the what the analogy between kind of human systems and works uh, and ecological systems and then, so I was, brought, I was brought up in, in quite a rural area and I spent a lot of my childhood outdoors. I love being outdoors, outdoors. I love being in the woods, I love being, yeah, next to the sea, just anywhere. And I've always, I've always took a lot of, as with personally, when I talk about perspective taking, for me, over my life, nature, and being out in nature has been one of the things that's really helped me to take perspective on life because nothing in nature, nothing stays the same, nothing stays the same for a moment. Everything is changing. Like in autumn, like the trees shed the leaves, but they're not, they're not dormant. They're, they're preparing for, they're taking stock, they're preparing for a new year, they're preparing to grow again. I've always felt that the way that we live our lives today is is not how our lives were intended. It's not how nature intended us to live our lives. And the systems that we have created have created a divide between, particularly within our own society in the, in the Western world, we've created a, a divide between the natural system and, and the human created systems to the point where we or there is, there is this thing that we're actually, we are separate. There is humans and there is nature. There is not. Humans are nature. And if you look at, like, even as a human being, you're not one thing. You're not one person. You are whole. You are, you are habitats. You are ecology. I think Nora, Nora Bateson uses the term of teeming with life. We are, but we don't, we don't necessarily have the time to reflect on that. So I've always been drawn to to nature, I use lots of metaphors as well. Sometimes how I make, just how I make sense of the world, and and communicate how I make sense of the world to others as well. And I've always found that nature's always nature's always given me something to to work with, something to be inspired by. What I love about my ecological world is just it just fascinates me. It's a world that. 
my new books and actually I didn't fully appreciate how extensive the mycological world is and the role that it plays in the world and the fungi was here long before we were and it will be here cleaning up long after we've gone it's not it's not an animal it's not a plant it, it's somewhere in between it's and it, it's like a magical world where all of this communication going on around you and under the ground and then very so often on top of the ground as well. And I think it's the, as I'm speaking, I think it's the, the communication between the mycelium, between the hyphae, between the natural world, how it lends itself to caring, how it cares for other aspects of the environment, how it moves nutrients around, how it, how, how it highlights distress, how it helps plants to, and trees to, to, to care for each other as well. I think it's, and this is going on around us all of the time. Because I remember you telling me a story about got two aspects of things, that this is the kind of mycelium that enables plants to perform a trick about getting energy from the soil and nutrients and all that kind of stuff. And without the mycelium, that form of communication and transport doesn't happen. And yeah. also that the mycelium is what enables those kind of giant kind of plant networks to function as communication mechanisms. And that, when I, when I hear you tell those stories and when I, like today, when I hear you talk about your work, there's something about, I see the analogy of, of those secret things that enable better communication. I wonder whether that's part of what the, the appeal of it to you. Yeah, I think it's, I think the appeal is the, um, the very often the unseen. It's those small moments of joy. It's that moment of realizing I'm not alone. So when I talk about my seed, when I talk about caring, actually, I'm not, who knows, I'm not talking about two completely different systems. I'm talking about two, not even parallel systems, two interconnected systems that are happening simultaneously around the world, but yet we still continue to see ourselves as being separate. Nice. Right. A couple more questions on a slightly different track. There's, Anyone who works with inks and systems will have the experience of not being understood, of trying to offer frames to people that they can't get their heads around, of like, of it just being everything being really hard and a struggle. Like when when you, when when you feel like that, what is it that 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 helps you get through those things? If I'm honest, I used to try and. I used to try and fight it. I used to try and get everybody to see what, what I could see. Can you not feel this? Can you not see this? This is. But I don't do that anymore. I found that like, it's like shouting at flowers. You can't shout at flowers and help them grow, can you? But what you can do mm. is dance. Dance. What you can do is dance. And for me, creating safe spaces in organizations, creating empathy, creating compassion is, you could 
you could deliver teaching on this and people could turn up and people could be present to that teaching. It doesn't mean they learn anything. We learn by doing. And it took me a long time to get this. It's about how we are and how we are informs what we do and how we do it. And where, yeah, I used to preach, try and, try and get people to see what I could see. It's much easier to invite them onto the dance floor to dance with you. Not everybody wants to dance. It's not everybody's comfortable dancing. It's that it's, no, it's not their thing, but like eventually people feel a beat, people join in, but it's not quick and you can't force it. And people have to go at their own time. People's senses of rhythm are different. People move differently and that's okay. I'm, I'm really liking that the dance description that you're giving is both metaphorically and literally true somebody needs to start that dance nice so that's that's a bit about what you do when it feels hard when it all feels exciting what what's your sense of what's possible so you you mentioned at the start that i'm champion for neurodiversity and I am, a, I am ADHD and just kind of click. And I'm quite mindful that well, when everything's going well, I feel like I can take on the world. And I feel that like everything's possible. And that comes with a great deal of energy. Personally, I've learned that that energy is something that needs to be managed. Because with that energy and with that level of energy, that intense energy can like quite often come crash. And then and with that crash comes exhaustion and then you can't change the world when you when you need yourself. So definitely become more consistent in being kinder to myself. I need to lean into looking after myself just as much as I would when things aren't going well. Nice. And that for me looks like making sure I sleep enough, making sure I exercise, making sure I get out in nature, making sure I eat. Because when I'm feeling that I can take on the world, there are all the things that will go out of the window because I will feel that I've got the energy to take on the world for days and days and days. Nice. I like that a lot. A bit of reminder for self-care always feels useful. I feel like you shared an awful lot of wisdom and insights with us in this conversation. So I, w I won't ask you what's the one bit of experience, experience you'd like to share with others because I feel like you've done that a lot. So how the, the, the range of things that you've talked about, the range of things that you do, if people are listening and they want to find out more about that stuff, where should they go to? What should they read? Where would you point people at? I consider myself to be, and I only recently got the language, a generalist and not a specialist, which means that I, that I draw on so many different sources of inspiration and, and, and information as well. So what I can do is all of the links to the research that I've talked about and the different models of working as well and make sure that they're available alongside right. this podcast. Uh, and 
so there'll be a range of those links available on the nextageradicals.net website alongside the, the, the this podcast. Any, any final thoughts that you would like to share with listeners before we wrap up? Yeah, we have talked about a lot of things. Oh, we've talked about a few things in a lot of different ways. Anything what, again, this comes back to is if something doesn't feel right, then that generally means that it isn't. And if you're feeling that, someone else is too. And it's incredibly important to be surrounded or have people around you and nearby that you feel safe enough to bring your whole self and have those conversations. Whether that's in your workplace, whether that's a, with a, an online community of practice, it's really important to have these conversations because until I started having them, I felt quite alone. But actually, loads of people feel exactly the same. <laughs> Absolutely the case from literally hundreds of people that I've spoken to about this felt so alone in the work I was doing in the way that I was feeling in the way that I was seeing the world and there are now increasing numbers of people putting their hands up and doing exactly as you're saying and say actually no it's not right there's this way that we're, we're working right now it's not right and it can be different and so yeah, I really hear you so the the Next Stage Radicals Network is is exactly a set of people who are putting their hands up and saying, you know what, it's not right. So if people are feeling like that, then connect with others in that network because you're bound to find an interesting conversation there. Claire Robinson, thank you so much for speaking with me today. That has been an absolute joy. And I really look forward to hearing the conversation with whoever you decide to interview. Thanks. So just to wrap up, I reiterate that all the a range of the content that Claire's been talking about is available on the nextstageradicals.net website and also all the other podcast interviews as well. So this is your host, Toby Lowe, saying thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections. So please tweet us at Next Radicals or get in touch at nextstageradicals.net. There you'll also find hundreds of posts and podcasts, sketch notes and stories, reports and resources, which Next Stage Radicals like you have shared as they explore what it takes to make work work better.